This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you all for coming. This is Script the Screen. This is presented by the Carsey Wolf Center, Department of Film and Media Studies. And you'll notice these awesome polytheater interns. They're the ones who actually put these events on with us. You know, you can see they're on camera. So say thank you to them after, more than Richard and I, which uh, they deserve all the praise. Uh, script to Screen is a series based on how the script gets translated to film and goes to the screen. So tonight, we're honored to have the writer and producer. So we get two different angles on the story and the script for tonight. So we're very excited. Please welcome Brian Nelson to the Paul Theater stage. Thank you. Our next, our next guest uh, was Vice President of Media Development at Vulcan Incorporated. I have a lot of credits for you, Richard, so I'm going to have to read Don't the card. Them. Uh, he oversaw in feature films like this, Far, uh, Far From Heaven, starring Julianne Moore. Uh, also documentary, Strain Days on Planet Earth. No Direction Home, Bob Dylan. Uh, Evolution, the Emmy-nominated uh, PBS series Evolution. But the single greatest career achievement Richard's ever created and done has become the executive director of the Kersey Wolf Center, which means he gets to run the Apollo Theater. Well, you get to run the Apollo Theater. Well, <laughs> and you get to I get be to my boss. Tell me. So how awesome is that we get to run this theater? All right, so Brian, we'll start with you. What was it like seeing Hard Candy at the Apollo Theater tonight? You know, I haven't seen it on a screen this large maybe since it came out. I mean, it's, so, so it was kind of a thrill. Um, still looks gorgeous. Uh, you know, the, the, one of the unsung heroes on this movie is the color timer. Those colors are amazing. And uh, so it was a hoot. And Richard, what was it like seeing it in your theater? I actually felt the same way you did. I hadn't seen it on the big screen since 2005. And just to get a sense of it again and to get a sense of the intensity of it, um, you just can't look at it on a small screen and get the same feeling from it. And watching the audience reaction, we were watching it together, the three of us, during some of the scenes, which we'll talk about, obviously. Uh, all right, so let's start at this beginning. So, Brian, what drew you to the idea of the premise of a 14-year-old girl, you know, uh, preying on a pedophile? Um, well, a lot of things. I mean, I was influenced by uh, a number of earlier films. I'm a huge fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, there's an indie film from the early 90s called uh, Ms. 45 that's a kind of dark vengeance story. Uh, I love Clint Eastwood's High Plains Drifter and the notion that there's, you know, who is this enigmatic man with no name who has, you know, this insidious plan for revenge and at the end we're still not sure exactly who they were. Um, I also was uh, influenced by... um, the Alfred Hitchcock film Shadow of a Doubt, where there is a teenage girl played by Teresa Wright, who is the only person who has figured out that her uncle, played by Joseph Cotton, is a serial killer. And they didn't even have that term, serial killer, when that film was made in 1942. But what they did have was character. What they did have was this intense story between these two actors where this... Uh, this teenage girl is the only one who can know or do anything about this, and what will she do? Um, so that was all floating around in my strange little brain. Um, <clears throat> I was approached by a producer named David Higgins, 
who had read my work, and we had uh, gotten along great, and we were trying to figure out what we might do together at some point. And he said he had read this article, a newspaper article, about um, these uh, girls in, teenage girls in Japan who would seduce men up to their apartment with the, the promise of underage sex and then beat them up and rob them. And David said, you know, I think there's something kind of interesting about you, you think that you should be afraid for this girl, and then suddenly, shortly, you realize, oh, maybe actually you should be afraid of her. And so we started batting ideas around, and uh, after, after a few weeks, I had created about a, um, about a seven-page outline for this film that was called Vendetta at that time. And then, at a certain point, I changed the title to Snip Snip, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and it was called that for quite a while, but um, but at a certain point, David suggested, you know, let, let let's think about something else. What you know, he mentioned to me, there's that that there was that uh, sort of comedy heist film about cheerleaders who had who had uh, a plan to rob a bank that was called Sugar and Spice and. And so, so he said, you know, if, if we could find something like that. And so that's how I arrived at Hard Candy. And Richard, from the producer standpoint, uh, did you did your head explode trying to say this is the premise? Or how did my head explode you know? over this premise? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, David, um, David and Brian had already met. Brian had already written um, actually a very refined script at the point that we got it. And we'd been at Vulcan productions we'd been looking for a film that we could do for not very expensively and we had read i don't know about a thousand scripts and nothing really hit and then one day um uh, there are actually three producers on this film david michael caldwell and i and michael walked into my office and said this is a wicked little gem I remember the words, and I went, yeah, sure. And I sat there, and I read it, and I read it in about, I don't know, an hour or less, <laughs> turning the pages and ran into his office, sort of my tongue hanging out, and said, this is fantastic. This can be done for what we're talking about. We can actually do this. A thousand scripts. Mm-hmm. And most of them, I assume, weren't that good. Drek. <laughs> Another good sign for you. There's hope out there. You write a great script like this, you will attract Producers and talent. Just keep that in mind. Aspiring writers. So, what were the challenges for you, Brian, writing a script? Because it's uh, you know it's two characters fundamentally in one room. The whole entire script. Well, my background actually, I trained as a theater director, and our plan B, or maybe plan F, I don't know. We, if 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 we exhausted all other resources, uh, uh, David Higgins and I thought, well, if nothing else, if if we find no one who is willing to back this, then, you know, Brian, you know a lot of actors. Um, we could just max out our credit cards and shoot it on digital video. And, and Higgins said, you know, and we can use my house. Um, and so I wrote it with that possibility in mind, that, that if all else failed, holy cow, maybe I will direct this. Um, <laughs> And therefore, I spent a certain amount of time at David's house. And it is written to be... Sh David has a rock garden in his living room, in his foyer. Um, I walked up on his roof. Um, 
looked his around. Ha- I mean, the, his house is the hard candy. It, it is. It is. Yeah. And and so, on a certain level, that became unintentionally a tremendous asset to me, because often when you're writing, you know, you are being a kind of novelist and and engaging in in this visionary act of. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm going to believe I do, and 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 trying to imagine all the details in 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 your brain. In this case, I knew every room of David's house really well because I was thinking in every scene: Do we have to leave the bedroom now? Hmm. Should we go to the kitchen now? And so, as I was writing it, I was also, in a way, staging it. I was blocking it like I would a director and thinking about. I know it's it. You know, one house, which most of the film is, feels like a limited thing. But on a stage, I only have one stage, and yet I move people around like gangbusters and create all these kinds of different pictures. So what is every possible little bit of visual strategy that I can create to um, to bring that off? And then, of course, that was immeasurably helped by the fact that then uh, Higgins and I went out and found David Slade, our... Mm-hmm incredibly talented director who can make a girl looking through a file cabinet look like the born identity. Um, and his ability to bring visual signature to the piece uh, meant that, you know, it, it's often for many people only later that they go, oh God, I guess there were really only like two, two locations in this movie. Um, but certainly that was, that was a big issue during the writing of it. That to make a virtue of the fact that it is contained and yet never let people feel like, oh, God, it's so contained. You know, you, Sometimes you'll see scripts and people will say, it feels like a play. And having come out of a theater background, I'm very alive to that. Um, so, so everything that I've ever learned about trying to keep a scene moving and trying to create visual interest, even in this smallest, most drab of, of circumstances and character interest and obviously suspense interest. I just try to pour it all, all in there. Yeah, you did that in the other movies, like 30 Days of Night, Trapped. They were trapped hiding from the vampires. The devil, they were trapped with the that, devil. Certainly that is one thing that yeah. people come to me now for. Uh, <laughs> um, since Hard Candy, the things that I am approached for, I was saying this to you earlier, uh, I am approached for about five different things. Uh, producers typically call me up now because they are looking for a story that either involves uh, a psychopathic killer, a brilliant teenage girl, um, subversive sexuality, an internet-based thriller, or most of all, contained. Yes, you know, we, we only have so many sets or we only have so much money and this is a guy who's shown he can make that work. And from your producing standpoint, what was it trying to, you know the script's only going to take place in one room. Did that affect you when you were dealing with the director or how it was going to shoot? Because you only, only had 18 days too. Yeah, we shot it in 18 days. I mean, the thing about, if you think about this movie as opposed to other movies, there were really, uh, when my, Michael and I came on board, there were, I guess, five of us. We were the Five Musketeers, or whatever that would be, um, and we, from that day on, we we basically hung together and 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 tried to figure it out. And when you make a very small movie, I mean, there's no real hierarchy. 
there, there you know there's no redundancy in the in 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 the team that's making it everybody's got a job to do and everybody does it so it's it's sort of halfway between my um my documentary life which is really small and um the larger films that we've done and um because i think the communication among all of us was so good it was actually really easy to do we you know there were creative tensions there always should be creative tensions but um we really moved it forward very quickly. It must have created such an intimacy on the set, though, with each other. Excuse me? It much, much amazing intimacy with all the crew and the, uh, oh, the yeah. actors. We were, and, oh, yeah, yeah, we yeah. felt like the little engine that could, uh, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, because, yes, as you said, I mean, we, we, sh- we had an 18-day shoot. We had $1 million. Um, we, we hired, one of our producing team was a guy named Hans Ritter, whose basic job was to convincingly, repeatedly, inventively lie to us about how much money there was left. No, we don't have any more. <laughs> but then, you know, when, right. when push came to shove, oh, well, maybe I have a little more, you know, yeah. but only when we really needed it. His, his job, in a way, was to protect us from ourselves. Um, we, we shot this on uh, a funding model as far as the crew that, that some people have called the indigent model. Well, there was a uh, there was a production company called Indigent, which yes. was independent digital entertainment, right? right? Um, and their model was this model, which was basically a sharing of the of of the revenues from first dollar. We all shared, so we invested in it, and everybody shared from dollar one, which is an unusual model to put it mildly. But this was also part of what helped. The rapport and the atmosphere on the set. Because everybody because, had equity. Because crew were told, for example, all right, we, can, we will pay you this amount, which might be a decent, respectable amount, or we'll pay you less, but we will give you, you know, a, a fraction of a point or whatever, depending on the size and nature of your job. We'll give you some portion of the return in the back end. And... That was one of the signals to us that we really had something great because, first of all, not only did a lot of crew initially say, you know what, yes, we will work for less and and take an investment in this. But not only that, the people who didn't say that initially, after three days they were in. You know, after three days of watching on the set and going, you know, know, one of the sound guys was like, no, I need the money. But after three days, he was like, you know what? You can give me a little less money. I want a piece of this. So that was also a factor in creating this, this great energy, that's, this great sort of uh, can-do it spirit that we had. It's amazing you mentioned sound because the use of sound in this film was amazing to me. Uh, the sounds of her surgery, of course. <laughs> But the sound effects, because you didn't see a lot of this stuff, it was your sound guy was awesome. I don't know the sound, and I also want to mention because many people don't realize the score. Um, you know, there is a score in this film. Uh, it's not elaborate. It's maybe eighteen minutes of music in the whole movie, but where it appears, it appears with uh, dare I say surgical precision. Um, <laughs> it's incredibly. <laughs> Restrained and yet when it's used, boy, does it pay off. So let's talk a little about Jeff. Uh, your characters have two sides to them, which I love. He starts as, you know, the predator and becomes the prey. Is that something that appeals to you when you're developing a character, kind of duality? Well, 
every character has to, by the end of a movie, discover something about themselves that they did not know. And if it can be the last thing that they ever wanted to know about themselves, the thing that they've been trying to lie about themselves to, then all the better. And Richard, you know, Patrick Wilson just came out of Phantom of the Opera, which was every dream yeah. girl's uh, fan. How many people saw Phantom, the movie? And have crushes on Patrick Wilson? Uh, what did you see in him? Like, wow, he had, there's something about this guy who's, you know, your wonderful Jeff. Well, I mean, we actually cast Ellen Page first, and so we had Ellen. And we were looking, I mean, we needed somebody because we only had two, I mean, the, the movie is essentially two people. I mean, both of them had to have enormous range. And Jeff was somebody who clearly had enormous range. It was actually Angels in America that convinced us, not, remember that? Uh, not uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera or the Alamo, but uh, the, Tony, the, the Tony Kushner P, uh, HBO. HBO. HBO of Angels yeah. America. Yeah, exactly. And he was so good in that. And he was, uh, he was in the closet, coming out of the closet, and was deeply conflicted about it and expressed it so well on screen. We were in, just, in that film. Yeah, in that in film. film. That's, yes, he's <laughs> obviously. Um, and expressed it so well on screen, we thought, this guy can handle the range that we're looking for. I mean, he actually, I mean, he actually said, I remember in Sundance, he said to me at one point that he had seen the, the writing of his, his, his lines is very dark, and he decided to bring some charisma and some, you know, some likability to it if he could, and he really came with that intention. Which was what we were praying for. Exactly. Um, you know, we had, I mean, I, I cannot give enough props to Patrick for not just his craft, but also his daring, because it took a while to find this actor. And there were a lot of actors who did not want to be this guy for even 18 days. Um, and just in terms of his daring, um, in terms of the fact that he was willing to, frankly, look like shit in certain mm-hmm. moments, um, that, you know, we had, we, we were we were willing to, you know, try try to, Make it as painless as possible, but he would say to the crew, "Just tie the knots, and I'll, I'll let me worry about it." So his hands are turning purple. There, that's not yeah, that's not makeup. I was going to ask that because I noticed, and that, that was his uh, in the scene where he's pull, his hands are pulled back, and you see the color difference. Those are his hands, and yeah. he had asked for that. I mean, we were he really he really <laughs> went for it, and certainly in terms of that likability, that was so important to us. Um, you know, there were actors that were discussed at one time or another who were tremendously talented, and if they'd said yes, I was going to be like, I'll be happy about this. And yet, mm, they would not have been right because, because they would have tipped you off that, oh, they probably did it. Whereas with Patrick, you spend an awful lot of time going, maybe she's wrong. Wait, he's so nice. He's, he's so nice. I remember we did a um, we did a, like a little friends and family screening of a work print at one point, and I was uh, teaching at USC at the time, and so I invited like a, a handful of, of uh, my uh, my students to watch the screening, and they came up to me afterwards and said, "We were spending the whole film saying he can't be guilty, he can't be," um, and you know that's what we needed. Well, if at the beginning you felt he was guilty, you'd feel no sympathy. Immediately, would have been cut off. Like, you wouldn't, sorry for the joke. Uh, so, but Ellen Page, though, I mean, her shift was even more Jekyll and Hyde than his. 
you know, because the first act, she is so the sweet little girl, and we're terrified for her. Were you conscious of, like, how long that should be in the script? Because you were afraid that if, you know, because we, we were all scared for her for so long, but, it, you know, if, we did, if that went on too long, it might have been too much. Did any concerns about that kind of shift? You know, you find it out on page 22. I feel like that's a pretty good place. Um, you know, if it had gone longer, I think you're right. We would be disturbed about that. But at the same time, uh, you need to sustain that tension long enough that you are really invested in her. And then when things change, it is the last thing you expected. And we would get that comment in reads when we sent the script out, you know, very often. People, uh, you know, I remember an executive saying to me, you know, I'm mad at you because I had a mess of scripts and I couldn't get through them all, but it was Sunday at 11.30 and I thought, this one has candy in the title. <laughs> I'll read this. <laughs> and after, after 30 pages, I was suddenly aware I'm all alone in the house. <laughs> you know, and, and that was one of our early indications that, wow, this is maybe really going to go somewhere. And Richard, in casting Ellen, uh, were you a little afraid of how suspiciously she grabbed onto that character? <laughs> We love Ellen. We Page. love. I mean, no. <laughs> so, what did you see? I mean, you you, you told me you, well, you screened a lot of actors. You saw a lot of actors. Oh, we sure three, did. Three, yeah. some, something. I think between four and five hundred in L.A. and New York and tapes all four, four to five hundred. You saw more than I did. Yeah, I, I had the benefit that it's true. You got that. Your casting back. people screened a lot of people. It's over. I saw maybe two hundred. Um, that was nothing. You know, and some <laughs> of them were actually really. Including actresses you know that um, who have gone on to work a lot. Um, we actually had we had a first I, choice before Ellen showed up. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I but well, I'll get to why Ellen was <laughs> turned out to be that person after all. But but what we would see frequently, especially first, well, what was difficult was seasoned actresses who had like grown up as since age six on a Hollywood set, we would think, well, this is great because we really need someone who can go the distance. And yet, frequently, they were actually maybe too seasoned. That you know, there's a lot of wisecracks in this. And they would toss those off like, you know, baby Jennifer Aniston. They, they were so impregnable and like, you know, brassy that you didn't fear for them. On the other hand, if we, we would sometimes see people who were extremely new to performing and you would fear for them and holy cow, that's all you would do is fear for them. You, you know, it, it would be unbearable to watch them go through what, what Haley has to go through. And so when, when we found Ellen, she had not, she, she had done a number of, of indie films in Canada um, little television work in Canada was completely unknown down here. Um, but that had given her just enough seasoning that, you know, she, she was rugged, but she also has obviously this incredible vulnerability, this incredible openness and wit and intelligence. Um, we really lucked out. Um, uh, one of the things that struck us when she came into Reed was 
I remember Michael asked her, I think it was Michael, asked her, so do you have a, do you have any literary ideas about this feeling? And I remember, you know, David and I looked at each other like, what kind of question is that? But she answered. She answered, and she said, well, I was thinking about Joan of Arc. And she talked a little about Joan of Arc, and we loved that, because on the one hand, Joan of Arc is a figure who puts on a disguise to do an incredible mission that no one thinks she could possibly do. And on the other hand, Joan of Arc might be crazy. <laughs> and that balance was really inspiring to both her and us. But, I mean, we actually, um, that when she came in to read, we had actually seen her already. We remember oh, yeah, the, there's that. We got the, I mean, we actually saw her first on a, her agent in Toronto sent yeah. in a videotape. And actually, it was the videotape of her just reading the part that really just blew us away. Well, I, I didn't. That's not where I thought you were going to go with oh, this. Okay. So, <laughs> where was I going to go with this? Well, <laughs> blew us away, and yet we were also really thrown because it was she had Wasn't just she, finished an she indie film. She was bald. Film. She was bald. She was bald. Yes, she was bald. She had just finished an indie film where she was a cult member. And so we were really struck by this videotape, but we said, could we see one with hair? (laughs) And so about maybe a week and a half later, another videotape arrives. And it's also, it's, it's great, except... The worst wig ever. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we're like, we don't, we don't want to lead you on, but boy, we're interested. But, oh my God, what are we going to do? That wig. Uh, what are we going to do? So, so on the basis of that much encouragement, she... We flew her out. She came on down and read for us in person. And by that time, had grown in enough hair that she looked not unlike what you finally see. She actually had that kind of Gene Seberg look that is referenced in the script. So by that time, in fact, she had almost grown into the character visually as well as emotionally. And I'm assuming, Richard, when you were casting, you realized this film would just fall apart if you didn't have the two perfect people. Yep. (laughs) I I mean, I don't see any way. Look, um, those two people have to carry every scene. And every scene, as, as as Brian said, every scene needs to successfully give that sense of tension and that's those reversals, that sense that something is happening unexpected in every scene. And those two people have to do that for 94, 97 minutes. And I felt that way about every single person in this. That to, At the beginning, it was just me and David Higgins. Then we went out and found David Slade, the wrong director could have sent this south so fast. Then we were lucky to find Vulcan. You know, there there were other <clears throat> producers and funders that we spoke to, you know, but 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 Richard and Michael and Vulcan were willing to uh not only fund us but also work with us and let us make the film we wanted to make. And um and I and then of course Ellen and then of course Patrick and then of course the composers the I mean Yo Willems and the crew. Yes, our cinematographer, Yo Willems. Fantastic. Uh, So many elements that I sometimes shudder to think, wow, if if one of those elements had been changed, you know, could have been a a far different outcome to this film. And can you explain how the relationship with David, the director, how did that work between all of you? 
Because a lot of times, like, writers don't even get to talk to the director sometimes in feature films. David Slade was tremendous to work with. Um, He's fantastic. Um, he had come from a music video background. Uh, he had gone to art school. He has a tremendous visual imagination. But he had read a lot of scripts and was looking and looking for what is going to be my feature debut. And we spoke to other directors. David clearly loved story when we spoke to him. And, and when we sometimes, you know, uh, would talk about, oh, maybe this element of the story or that will change, he would get more tense than the writer, which is not typical for a director. I, I mean, I remember there was, there, was, there was one small point at which, uh, one plot detail at which, you know, he, he pulled me into a corner and he said, it's got to stay exactly the way it is. Don't let the bastards change your mind. <laughs> so in that sense... I was the bastard. No, no. <laughs> in that sense, he was a writer's dream. But he was also, I'm, I mean, just to go to the other side, I mean, he was, he was a dream not only because he was so strongly in favor of the vision and so strongly supported it and so strongly championed it, but at the same time, if you did make a good case, he would alter things. I mean, he could see it. And he wasn't simply wedded to his vision or a, you know, a vision simply to be possessive. He wanted it to be better. And so he would, um, he would actually evolve as ideas came forth. I feel like we had an aesthetic, and it's an aesthetic that I try to look for in whomever I'm working with, which is, you know, it's not about whose idea it was. Right. It's not about who won today's argument or whatever. Um, uh, currently, at the moment, I'm a writer-producer on a show that's about to premiere on Stars that is called Da Vinci's Demons, and it's about Leonardo da Vinci. And his his lost adventures when he's 26 and there's a scene in one of the episodes that i love where where people are talking about what's the truth of history that's going to be known about what's happened today and and da vinci looks in and looks to the other characters and says the best story wins and that's in a way our was our aesthetic here as well that you know uh, I will give an example of, of a suggestion that was not in the first draft that was ve I'm very indebted to Vulcan for, was um, Michael and Richard asked me at one point, could we see Haley thrown off her game more at somebody? Could we see her deal with something that she didn't expect? And that's where Mrs. Takuda comes from, because uh, that neighbor was not in the first draft of the script. Um, but... You know, that was suggested, and I thought, you know, they have a point. They're absolutely right. Of course that would be interesting to see. What can I do? What can I create that would be fun to see her have to improvise and make up stuff that's completely outside of her elaborate plan? And um, I'm so happy that that suggestion was made because that scene with Sandra O, oh, that sequence is one of my favorite things in the, in the whole movie. I was actually most scared for Ellen of that scene. That's the, the whole, whole point. Yeah, and it was so brilliant because she's about to get caught, you know. And so, in some ways, you wish she would get caught. Uh, because there's also the great moment when Jeff says, "I will confess to the police if you let me go," which right. is another moment we were all rooting for. Is like you got what you want, 
Is that something that was conscious, like a good emotional beat for you, saying, you know? Well, what's interesting is that's what you might think she wants, but that's not what she wants. You know, a few moments before, she said, you know, he says, why don't you just kill me? And she says, is that what you think I want? And he says, isn't it? And she thinks a moment and says, close. But her goal is not a confession to the police. But the audience would have loved it. I mean, theoretically, in real life, that would have been. Uh, so we do have to bring up the castration scene. I think we have to talk about it. Uh, I thought it was great. I mean, it was a long scene, a great setup. Great 18 descri- pages. Yeah. It's funny. When I was writing, I remember thinking, today will, today will be the day I write that scene. <laughs> and actually, it was about four days later. Because every time I thought, Today I'm going to get to that scene. Questions would keep coming up. The characters would suddenly say, wait, before you do that, there's one more thing you have to talk about. There's one more question you have to ask. And so it actually came much later in the script than, than I initially anticipated when I had written my outline. But you always intended for that to happen. You just didn't know how you can execute it? or Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, that was another bad joke. Sorry. Unintentional bad joke. Uh... Were you, wor- uh, Richard, were you worried about how the audience would react for that sequence? Well, I was very worried at one point because David Slade, David wanted to do the entire scene in one shot oh. from beginning <laughs> to end in one day. And um, as producers, that completely freaked us out. I mean, we were happy with the idea that he would try that, but we desperately wanted a second camera to be locked down so that if something happened, we could cut away. Uh, I was... I mean, if you read the script, it's so... It's so such a part of the script that you don't really go, oh, here's the castration mm. scene. It it happens so naturally, and it's so inevitable that you don't sort of land on it and worry about it. I was worried about the production. And then we talked about it and decided to add a camera, and then we were fine. And Patrick, I mean, he is totally immobilized for the whole entire scene. As an actor, it must have been really challenging for him because he can't move, you know, other his head. I mean, that was confining. It must have been really... Was it easier for him, or was it, how was it for Patrick? I don't think it was easy. At the same time, I will also say, this is the sort of thing that many actors live for, mm-hmm. you know, because... He acted the hell out of it. <laughs> it's not about, oh... I mean, Patrick's an accomplished dancer. He can, you know... He was, he was on the full Monty in Broadway. So, I mean, he's been vulnerable in a lot of different ways. But this was... <laughs> that was before the film. Yeah. Um, but but this was um, you know this was something where all he had was his heart and his you know all right maybe I'll say balls in in going to that place in being willing to be that open and that helpless uh, you know every time I see those scenes I'm just filled with awe. <laughs> All right, so now we have this wonderful film done, and we're moving to Sundance Film Festival. And there was a midnight screening, uh, the big screening, and I've heard rumors that there were some technical problems that could have sunk it all. Um, well, we, uh, you know, we had a little party before it, and we were all walking over to the theater, and David had gone. David Slade had gone early, and um, he was unhappy with the sound. I can't remember whether it was a technical glitch or something else or somebody had set the levels wrong or something. And so midnight came and uh, the line 
was around the block. I mean, it was around the corner and down the, uh, down the alley for the Egyptian. And we were there and waiting outside, and 12 o'clock passed, and 12.05, and 12.15, and we're standing in 15-degree weather. And I'm standing next to my boss, who's Paul Allen, who's a co-founder of Microsoft. And finally, I turned to him and said, are you getting cold? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> so I thought, we better go in. So we just sort of walked in and walked up. And just at that moment, David finished whatever he was doing in the booth and fixed it. The doors opened, and everybody came in. So it wasn't that big a deal. Ah. Uh-huh. But if you had it here, you wouldn't have had that problem. That's true. <laughs> Next time. Next time. Next time. So, uh, so what was it, what you watching the audience reaction? I mean, because uh, you know, here people knew what to expect, but no one knew what to expect. So, what was the audience reaction after that screening? Or... <laughs> well, you know, we we knew to prepare because there was a day, and maybe you were present for this. I just heard about this. Uh, there was a day where we showed dailies of the film to uh, a marketing team at Vulcan. And I was told that someone passed out. Is that she, true? No, well, she was pregnant and it was hot in the room. Oh, yes. fine. <laughs> Burns my bubble. <laughs> well, at any rate. I was there. Um, certainly we've had all kinds of reactions. Um, I remember uh, we did it. After Sundance, for example, we did a, we were picked up by Lionsgate, and they did a test screening because this is a hard film to market. They they were really searching around trying to figure out who is our audience, how will we find them. They brought in an audience of, um, of twenty one to thirty five year olds who were willing to see a scary movie, and showed it to them in Woodland Hills, and did a focus group afterwards. And and, um, and one of the things I'll, I'll never forget was the, the moderator creating, conducting the focus group said, so, so you know, t- t- tell me what you think about, about this movie. And the women in, in the, the test group all said things like, oh, my God, this should be shown in sex education classes. <laughs> and, and, the, and the men... The men, to a man, all looked at her and said, she should be caught. <laughs> so to answer your question about Sundance, I'm, because nobody knew quite what to expect, the lights went up and the place was dead silent. I mean, and the ushers in Sundance, for some reason at this film, were all male, and they were, they were supposed to be sort of standing at the rows, and they were all sitting on the floor with their legs crossed. <laughs> Similar reaction here, I noticed, by the way. Uh... Well, and, you know, we, it is not a film for everyone. No. And our second screening at Sundance, there was, was not at midnight. It was, it was, I think, an afternoon screening. And there was a Q&A afterwards. And at the end of it, we were talking about this guy earlier, too. You know, at the end of it, there was, there was this massive guy in a giant parka who, like, if you were casting the Unabomber, you might <laughs> cast him. And, he had, he had he was reading off index cards that he'd been scrolling, and he just looked at us and said, "What gives you the right to make a film like this?" <laughs> we were just, we we uh, looked at each other, and and uh, David Slade stalled for a moment, and, and <laughs> you answered the question. Well, I, I don't even remember what you said. I but don't you know did. what you did. I you said, but it. I talked him down. Yep. He did not charge us. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but we worried about it for a moment. He was a big, big guy. guy. Um, <laughs> Very big guy. At any rate, it, it, is, it is clearly not for everybody. It's fun. I mean, I have, I have friends who think, you're so nice. <laughs> of course I'm going to see your movie, Brian. And, you know, I've, I've had to tell them, you know, you need to know what it is first. I, you, don't, don't do it out of friendship. Do it out of informed consent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, t- I, I told Brian this story. Um, I'd been making documentaries for a long time, and they're all sort of highbrow stuff. Brain, the mind, evolution. So I made this, and then I, we had made Far From Heaven, which is a really lovely film. And we made this, and my mother knew about it because I'd been telling her what I'd been doing. But I, it hadn't occurred to me to say, you should be careful. So my mother, who was then 84 took all her little friends from their little place, like eight of them, from 80 to 85, and they tottered off to see this movie. And um, the phone conversation afterwards was really interesting. <laughs> so always tell your mom the truth. Uh, all right, so the movie had the reaction Sundance. What was the process of selling it? Because now Lionsgate... Oh, my God, that was, I, it was wonderful. I, we, the movie ended at, what, 2 o'clock in the morning. We walked out of the theater... Uh, we were going, um, I, we went to, um, I, William Morris was one of our agents. We went to their, cot, their they had a little condo in, um, in, in Park City, and we went to the condo. By the time we'd gotten to the condo, we'd gotten three phone calls from distributors. Um, we got to the condo, we walked inside, and we got a phone call, and it was an English distributor who said, I'm sitting outside of the condo, I'm not leaving until you sell me that movie. Um, <laughs> It was, and then we sort of, uh, Lionsgate came and a few other people came. We talked about it, and we had essentially sold the movie by 5 a.m. And uh, it never happens like that, but it did to us. It was fabulous. I was asleep by then. I know you were. (laughs) You didn't have to worry about it. (laughs) Wow, that's that's amazing. Uh well, also, there was a lot of other films at Sundance, too, that year. Squid and the Whale and Junebug. So it seemed to be a really good year. It was a good year. Uh, a lot of quality films and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So make good films, guys, and you go to Sundance. Uh, all right. So we, uh, it's our last question. We always ask the same question of our guests. I'm going to start with you, Richard, because, you know, you know the question. <laughs> and it's a little fair. We are a movie theater, so can you tell us about one of your favorite early childhood memories of going to the movies? Favorite? Or, yeah, most... or it could be anything you can act to. It doesn't um... Sure, the uh, the last scene in Old Yeller, where the dog dies. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> that was my. I mean, it was. It had a huge impact on. In what way? I mean, I walked out of the theater devastated. Oh, okay. No, no, oh, yeah, okay. I know. Uh, <laughs> ah, you thought I was going was through like the hard candy thing. thing. No, I get it. No, no. This was. Yeah, I have a soft spot for dogs. What can I tell you? That's funny. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't see a whole lot of movies as a kid. I saw a lot of TV. Um, we didn't go to the movies a lot when I was a kid. Um, but I had the TV guide schedule memorized. Um, and I, I, I do remember... Um, my friends said they were going to the movies and I could come along and, oh, this was so exciting because it was a movie of a TV show. I 
love. And so I, I remember, like, the first drive-in movie I saw was House of Dark Shadows. Oh. And, and that, that was the best. Well, I want to thank Brian. Sad, That's isn't fun. it? But there you are. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Brian, and, of course, Richard, for sharing your insights in this film. And thank you for the audience for all coming out. I uh, hope you had a really good time. Uh, we are coming back in the spring, but we have, we're not announcing yet what we're doing because it's not confirmed. But please come back for more scripted screens and back to the Pollock Theater. And thank these interns on the way out because they're the ones who actually really made this possible. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.